And this week, we're going to be looking at grace concerning the state of our mind. Last week, Pastor Sean Clemens preached on the mission and, and how Paul was provoked by grace to certain works and how that same grace working in our lives should provoke us to serve. This week, we're going to look at the role of grace in, in transforming our mind and what the, what, the end goal of, uh, what the end goal of this transformation is for us. We're going to be looking in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. If you're turning there in your phone, <laughs> have you ever noticed like turning there? Like you, if you turn there, nobody's turning there anymore. You're just going there directly. Same thing with like uh, hang up the phone. Like my kids have no idea what hang up the phone means. <laughs> you know, if I told them to hang up the phone, hey, hang up the phone. They'd be like, uh, on what? Right? Because they just hit the end button. It'll be interesting to see if our language ever catches up with the change. But uh, Romans, Romans was written to the church in Rome by the Apostle Paul. Uh, the church in Rome was made up mostly of Gentiles. That's non-Jewish people. And there were some Jewish people in there as well. So they were facing kind of the same things that, we, that I was just talking about. They got to figure out, how do we do this thing? We've all come to faith in Christ one way or another. You've got, the, you've got this long history of the redemption of a coming Messiah. And you've decided to accept that for the, for the, for the Jewish people. And then, but for the Greeks, for the, for the Roman people, for the Gentiles, what they had to do is they, had to, they, had, they heard about this God that was above every other God. And they decided to follow this God who was above every other God who died for them and rose from the dead for them. And so Paul writes this letter. The church in Rome had never had an apostolic visit. In fact, we don't actually know exactly how the church in Rome was founded. So probably what we expect happened is somebody heard probably in Corinth or in a a surrounding city. They heard the gospel. They responded to the gospel. They got discipled and they went to Rome. Either somebody was passing through on a trade route and heard the gospel and took it to Rome, or somebody heard the gospel and was provoked to go to Rome because where does this message need to be heard the most but in the seat of power of, of, our, of our area. And so the Church of Rome was actually started by someone, and we don't know who, but they were impacted profoundly by the grace of God, and they took the message, and people started in, encountering Jesus, and they started growing in a relationship with Jesus, and the church started growing, and it started reaching Gentiles and Jews alike. So somebody saw this, somebody understood, man, this isn't just for Jewish people. This isn't just for non-Jewish people. This is for all people. So in the seedbed of power of the Roman government, they brought the gospel. And Paul is writing them a letter because, you know, if you, if, if you put yourselves in the shoes, so if you've been attending church for a year, you heard it and you're like, I got I to gotta take this message. And then you went off and you started a church, having just heard about it for a year. How, how, how effective, how fruitful do you think you'd be as a church planter? Right? I mean, I've grown up at Grace Covenant Church and I still trip all over myself. I've got more training. The disciples only had three years with Jesus. Granted, it was Jesus, but granted, they are just like us. And one of the things I'm learning is that it doesn't matter so much how great the teaching is as much as how receptive the person is to the teaching that makes, that makes all the difference. So anyway, so this church got started. And, and Paul is writing them a letter. He's like, you've, you've had no leadership. You've had no training. I want to give you some training. So verse, chapters 1 through 11 in, the, in, the, in this letter that Paul wrote to, to, the, to the Romans, focuses on doctrine. Doctrine is just a set of beliefs or it's a statement of beliefs. And Paul is outlining, hey, this is what we really believe. You know, if you come to church two or three times, you'll hear some things, 
but it doesn't give you a full picture of what we believe or why we believe it. More conversation is always needed, right? And so this letter that Paul is writing to the Romans is this further conversation. And he's saying, this is what we believe. This is why we believe it. This is how we believe it. He focuses on the righteousness of God primarily. He touches on the unrighteousness of man. And then he talks about the righteousness that's given to us from Jesus Christ. And then in chapter 12, he changes direction. In chapter 12, he moves from belief to behavior. And he's like, we've got 11 chapters of how, of what we believe and how we believe and why we believe. Now this is how we should behave as a result of what we believe. There shouldn't be a gap between what we believe and how we behave. But so often there is. And sometimes we don't explicitly state the behavior because we assume that the belief will make it right. And then, and then people just believe and they never behave in accordance with the belief. Or sometimes we, we're so offended by a behavior that we tell people how they should behave without any belief. Live this way. Do this way. Don't do that. Do this instead. And it's like, but why? They don't believe. To go into the club and be like, yo, treat each other holy. Stop doing that. <laughs> God honors purity. <laughs> right? How foolish would that be? If the people don't believe, why would you expect them to behave as if they believe? So Paul didn't start with the behavior. He started with the belief. He's like, let me, let, let, let me, let me tell you about how amazing God is and how amazing grace is. And once I built that framework, I want to encourage you. He says, I appeal to you. Let's jump into this. Romans chapter 12, verses one through three. Paul says this to the church of Rome. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your, your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind so that by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think more highly than he ought, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Father, thank you for your word. Help us today to understand better your grace and your desire for transformation in our hearts and minds and in our life. In Jesus' name, amen. This passage starts with that question, uh, what is uh, therefore? And anytime we see the word therefore, we need to ask the question, what is it? Therefore. I just realized this doesn't make sense when you translate that to Spanish. Thank you, Deanna, for working so hard for us. I don't know what the name, I don't know what the word therefore means, but I'm sure it doesn't have anything to do with the therefore. Anyway. <laughs> the therefore in chapter 12, verse 1, refers back to the first 11 chapters of Romans. It really refers maybe to the immediate chapter or the immediate ideas that were just communicated. But we can look at it and understand that really to understand what Paul is getting at, we really should read the first 11 chapters. 
The same thing with the Ten Commandments series. If you recall, the conversation between God and his people didn't start with the Ten Commandments. It started with a promise that God wanted to be our God and he wanted us to be his people and he wanted to protect and, and uh, he wanted to protect us and provide for us and make us a distinct people in all the earth. And that's why he gave the commandments. And so we find ourselves kind of with the same kind of shadow. In verses one through in chapters one through eleven, we see all of this information about how we how we can believe and what is true and right and righteous. And then in twelve, it's like, and this is how you can walk this out. And so he starts off with, therefore, I appeal to you, or I urge you. I love that Paul starts with the appeal. He pleads with them. In light of this truth of the gospel, please live this way. In a way that honors God. In a way that, that doesn't promote yourself or lift yourself up, but lifts up God and points to Him and to Him alone. Don't make a big deal out of yourself. Make a huge deal out of Jesus. For anybody who says that Christianity is full of rules and regulations and laws, I present to you this passage as an argument against that being the case. That all Paul did is say, this is how God is, and this is what his plan is for us, and this is what his hope is for us. And in light of all of this plan, in light of all of this hope, please consider your life worth giving up for this. As Jesus gave absolutely everything. As Jesus Jesus was brutally murdered on a cross, consider dying to your temporary desires. I appeal to you to present your body as a living sacrifice. And he describes it with two words. He says, holy and acceptable to God. Holy, the word holy means consecrated or set aside for. So when we say that God is holy, holy, what we're saying is he is unlike everything else. He's completely unlike everything else that we have a, a frame of reference for. He is above, he is beyond, he's wiser, he's more beautiful. Even, even whatever words I just used to describe, whatever you thought of, it's beyond that. Right? So it's beyond our imagination because he's completely holy and completely set aside. And he's saying, I want you to be a, to sacrifice even your bodies. Consider your bodies to be holy and set aside for him and for his purposes. Let the fact that he, complete, that he died for you and rose from the dead provoke you to, temporary, uh, to, to the temporary sacrifice of committing your, your, your body and your mind and your purpose to his purpose. Make yourself a vessel that he can use. Be willing to do the things that he would have you do. The acceptable part isn't, isn't about us being good enough to be acceptable. The acceptable part, it's Jesus. It's his blood that was poured out on the cross. It's his righteousness that is impugned. That means given to us. It was placed on us. That's what makes us acceptable. And so sometimes when I think about making myself acceptable for God, it's more about not defiling something that's been made pure as opposed to trying to make myself pure. Does that make sense? You've got a team clean. You, you don't have to clean the tablecloth. It's already clean. Just don't knock the wine over. The pastor said wine. <laughs> yeah, I said wine. 
But it's a matter of keeping what he's, he's already purified undefiled. What are the things that I'm listening to? What are the things that I'm watching? What are the, what are the meditations of my heart? What do I do when I see somebody who's attractive? You know, when you see someone, is that, that too awkward? Let's talk about that because y'all are just being quiet today. So like you see, you're walking down the street, right? And you see somebody who's attractive. Has anybody ever done that? Nope, just me. Okay, that's cool. And you see them and you're like, hey, they're really attractive. And maybe you make them like, let's say they're like a seven and a half. You right? Am I too worldly for you? I've stopped rating them just for the record. I stopped rating them about 13 years ago. When I decided that I was going to marry Megan. We've been married 12 years next month, but it was 13 years ago that I, I, I got to throw out the rating system because it didn't matter anymore because I knew what I wanted. And then everything was rated against her and everybody rated really badly. Actually, kind of cool. That's how I knew I wanted to marry her. I was on a missions trip in Latvia and I was praying for the nation of Latvia. I was there for four weeks. Went to Latvia and Lithuania. Really bizarre, terrible experiences and really wonderful experiences. I'll tell you about it sometime. I got robbed. Uh, <laughs> But I was, I was praying for, this, for, for Latvia, and, and Megan just kept popping into my mind. And it, it, There are more details, but I'll keep all of that out. And I was like, man, I, I want to marry her. And it was about that same time. Gosh, that was more than 13 years. That was a long time ago. And so I was like, so then I met other people, and I'm like, ah, that's not Megan. That's not Megan. That's not Megan. That's not Megan. But that's where, I guess, so that's when my rating system fell apart. Anyway, stop rating people. So you're walking down the street, right? Hypothetically. And you're like, <laughs> you're like, hey, that person's like a seven and a half. Don't make them like a 15. Right? You saw they were seven and a half. You don't have to look again and make them a 15. If they're a 10, don't make them a 20. You got it? You're looking twice. I'm just saying don't look twice. That's all. Don't. I was just trying to be clever. <laughs> Strike that one from... If it was a part of my notes, I probably, all right, let's keep going. But what are we giving our eyes to? What are we making our hearts meditation? Oh, one more thought about that, this, the judging other people. Hey, stop looking for eye contact if you're married, right? You, go ahead and look for eye contact if you're looking for a wife. But, you know, if you're walking through the mall and you're looking for eye contact and you're married, just stop it. You, you're not anything anymore. Right, you gave that to your wife or your husband at the altar, so don't even, don't even look for that. Does that make sense? You're with, you know what I'm talking about, the eye contact, and you're like, hey, I got their eyes. You know, it's like, what even value is that? You're, you're flexing the wrong muscle. You're flexing the, the muscle you need to be flexing is the, I don't even care what's in this mall. I got a good woman at home, right? Or I got a great man at home. You know, in, yeah, so, okay. That has nothing to, it has everything to do with what we're talking about. We need to consider the meditation of our, of our mind and what are we doing with our body and, and what are we giving our time to. We need to be holy and acceptable. That's where we were. So let's talk about, let's talk about why this is. He jumps in and he says, secondly, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. But for what purpose? Why do we want to be renewed? Why do we want to be transformed? Why would we even want this? What desire would we have for it? Wait, you're saying I've got to give up all this good stuff? I've got to give up the club. I'm not allowed to flirt with the girls in the mall. I shouldn't be like trying to catch everybody's eye and trying to be something anymore. I'm not supposed to be anything anymore. Help me out. What's the benefit? What's, what's in this for me? 
Anybody ever felt that way? You're counting the cost. You're like, I really want to follow Jesus, but I really, really want that dude. I've never had that thought. (laughs) I just realized I've been talking a lot to the men, so I thought I'd talk to the women for a moment. Whoo! (laughs) Did I tell you I spent a night in Amsterdam on my way back from Cape Town? That was an interesting experience. This is called distraction. This guy came up and tried to sell me cocaine on the street of Amsterdam. And, uh, you know, we're walking through and all sorts of drugs are legal there. And, all sh- and actually, my heart is actually really stirred for the Netherlands and, um, already. And I'm like, man, this is, this is really, uh, they need the gospel so desperately. And this guy came up and he's like, hey, man, you want some cocaine? And I was like, that was forward. You know, like offer me a good time or something first, but he offers me like cocaine right off the top. And and he kept trying, he kept pushing and he goes, it is so good. It'll make you cry. So I was like, brother, my God is so good. If I introduced you to him, he'd make you cry. And that was the end of that conversation. But what benefit is to us to give up all of these things that we used to want, that we desire? Even maybe right now, you're like, hey, this church thing, I came for the baptism to support a friend or a family member. That's cool for them, but not for me. I'm not willing to give these things up yet. I still want that relationship. I still want this thing in my life. I still, I'd rather find my, my belonging and my purpose in something else. What is in it for me? And this is what it is. So that... By testing, you may discern what is the will of God. What is good, acceptable, and perfect. First of all, he calls for a transformation, not a confirmation. And that conforming. Transforming, not conforming. And so the difference there is is the same as what I was talking about earlier. Where uh, we're not putting the behavior out ahead of the belief. We're letting the belief produce a change in behavior. And the Spirit of God draws near to you and you'll realize you don't have an appetite for certain kinds of things anymore, even though at the beginning, sometimes it's a decision. Uh, two years ago, I, I, I started losing weight, right? You guys know about this journey that I've been on. And it's, it's almost 60 pounds now. And so, so but, it, but it's cool. But at the beginning, it was like I, I, I believed that it was bad to eat nachos, but I also believed that I loved them more than being healthy. And so I ate lots of nachos. I believed, the, I believed in my nachos more than I believed in working out. And sometimes we have to look at our behavior to figure out what it is that we believe. Because if you ask me on the surface, I'd say, I believe I want to be healthy. But if I looked at my behavior, it would tell me that I believe that I want to feel good, like in my mouth, right? And I was sneaking nachos. It was a lot. But so, so, (laughs) but we don't want to be, we don't want to just conform. But at the beginning, it took a decision. It was like, no, I do want to be healthy. I believe that being healthy is more important. So because I believe that being healthy is more important, I'm going to make some really hard decisions and I'm going to, I'm going to let my, my, my behavior line up with my belief. And so I was like, I'm going to stop putting sugar in my coffee and cream in my coffee because I was getting tons of calories that way. And it was like, okay, so I'm going to eat cheese less than one time a day. It was bad. I was addicted. It was, I had nachos more than once a day, more times in my life than I will admit. But there's this transformation that happens as we allow the Holy Spirit to move on our hearts and minds. 
And then we can test the will of God. Now, the word that's used here about, about testing is a word that speaks to testing affirmatively, not challenging. Does that make sense? So we're not testing as in, oh, yeah, God, I'm going to prove you wrong. We're testing to look for the positive. We're looking to affirm what is the good, uh, the good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. Now, these qualities are adjectives, good, acceptable, and perfect, meaning generous, well-pleasing, and mature. They're, adj- they're adjectives that describe the will of God. It's not, uh, it's not descriptions of three different kinds of his will. It's not like there's a good will of God that's, a, that's different from his acceptable will, that's different from his perfect will. His will, the will of God, is good, acceptable, and perfect. Does that make sense? And that's why we can sing that he's, he's a good God. You are good always. We can sing that and we can know it because his good will flows from his good person. And as we understand what is the will of God and we're able to test it and recognize it and, and walk in it as a good thing, this next part comes to life. And he says, by the grace given to me, I say that everyone among you ought not think more highly of him, ought not think of himself more highly than he ought think, but each to, with sober judgment, according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. We ought to walk humbly with one another in the community that God's placed us in. I used to think that walking humbly meant to think little of myself. And so I, I thought of myself in very diminutive terms, and I, I would put myself down, effectively insult myself. I'd beat myself up and, and find myself to be worthless. Or I'd make a mistake, and I'd be like, well, I'm, just, I'm an idiot. Gosh, why did I do that? I'm so dumb. Why does anybody bother with me? Why do I even bother with myself? And I used to think that was like what God was asking me to do, to be humble. But that was, that's not humility. That's hating something that God has called good. That's hating and kicking against something that God loves. To be humble, C.S. Lewis defines it as not thinking less of yourself but thinking of yourself less. And as we do that, what we do is we think of others more. Sometimes you can have a, a big gift of faith or maybe you've avoided certain pitfalls in your life or maybe you've got more money than other people in your family or maybe you've got a better relationship than other people in your family. It would be really easy to get puffed up and be like, I've got these things because I'm, I'm kind of a big deal. He's saying, no, 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 it's not about, it's not about how good you are. I've given out this gift of faith in the first place. It's not about how well you believe or how strongly you believe in Jesus that that commends you. If you've got a strong faith in Jesus, that should commend God all the more. Because everything comes from him, including our faith. That's really good news because if you don't have enough strength to build up your faith, you can ask him for faith. Does that make sense? If it's up to us, the only faith that I can have is the faith that I can have. 
But because faith comes from God, I can cry out to him and ask him for more faith. I don't have to act like I've got faith for something. God, I, I, I want faith for this thing. Can you give me faith to believe here? Because I'm struggling to believe here. I'm struggling to believe that you'll, you'll redeem me. I'm struggling to believe that there's a hope for me. I'm struggling to believe that there's a future. I'm struggling to believe that my kid's future is secure in you. I'm, I'm having a hard time believing that this difficult time is from you. I'm having a difficult time believing that you are good. Give me faith. If all you've got is enough faith to ask for more faith, that's a good place to spend it. That's not a, a, a prayer or a hope that's off the menu. In fact, it's a great place to spend that bit of faith. Probably even better than a new house, a new car, or God to change your spouse. Because <laughs> as your faith increases, you'll be the one that changes. You'll probably find satisfaction in your car. And your hope will be more secure. I'm going just a few minutes long, but I want to make this last point. When I think about um, when I think about my own weakness, we, when I think about weaknesses that, that you all have, we really have to make, we're, we're, we, we come to a place of decision where we are either going to acknowledge our weakness and our shortcomings and our failings and invite God to come and to redeem us in that situation, in that state of sin, in that state of shame, in that state of guilt, inviting him in to come in and change us and transform us. Or we're going to cover it up and act like they're not there. My, my own weakness is my reminder of my desperation for more of God and for his transforming power. You know, no matter how strong any of us are, we, we don't have to look any further than this. And this will be my last illustration. Um, I'm looking for maybe somebody who's the strongest person in the room. Maybe, maybe you. I won't do this to Jaden. I, I want to do this to Jaden. I want to bring him up. I like that he put his hand up. Come on, muscles. Um, I'll just do it this way. Even the strongest person in this room is incapable of picking themselves up. Any picking up that we can do of ourselves is extremely temporary. Isn't it? The most we can pick ourselves up is to jump. And the gravity slams us back to the ground. And the same is true for us in our soul. The same is true for us in the spirit. The same is true for us in all of life. That if we were able to pick ourselves up, we would have done it already. But God has given us this illustration in ourselves that we can't even pick ourselves up. It requires somebody else to come along who can pick you up. So even though I can pick up one of my kids, even once I've picked up my kids, I still need to be picked up. So better for my kids to be picked up by someone who doesn't need to be picked up on their own. Hebrews talks about how, how the, the priests, when they interceded on behalf of the people, they had to intercede for themselves and for the people they were interceding for until Jesus came. Jesus isn't bound by the sin that we're bound by. 
He's not held down by the same worries and the same fears and the same struggles that we are by because he overcame them when they came on him. That's the good news of the gospel. Is that by the grace of God, he saw us in our helpless state, unable to help ourselves, and he came to us to redeem us, to pick us up, to transform us. He's going to let us into his plan so that we can know what he's up to, and we'll be able to test it and see that, yes, God's plan is good, and there is a hope for me. There is a future for me. There is a hope for us. Ah, that gets me so excited. 